Every day, 130 Americans die from opioid overdose. Some of us are in invisible prisons today, even as we try to appear free. Sales of alcoholic beverages are up 55% compared to a year ago. I believe God's going to set you free. Welcome, friends, to another episode here on the Recovering Reality Podcast. I forgot. I need to plug something real quick, guys. Okay, I have an amazing guest on today. She's going to share a lot of great stuff with us, but I need to plug something really quick. If you guys want to help me out real quick, one of the things you can do, if, if you've listened to our podcast, got some hope from it, enjoyed it, just jump over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and a short review. It helps us get the word out with our podcast to more people in a time where hope is needed. So that being said, I, I have a, a friend on the podcast today who has a unique perspective into this uh, whole, well, we call it the opioid you know, epidemic, but I think, uh, I think addiction epidemic is probably more, more suitable, but um, she has a very unique perspective into this. And Rebecca, Miranda, thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Rebecca is a flight nurse. And I'm going to probably butcher if I try and explain any of that. So we'll let you do it when we start chatting, okay? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, a flight nurse who has experienced many traumatic situations when it comes to addiction and mental health and has sort of walked through a bit of an experience in her own personal life as well. And I thought it would be fantastic to have her on the show and I'll just say this really quickly but with what it is I do for years I've had I, I, I'll tell people and it's as weird as it sounds I'll get the question so often that people will say oh you're you know a uh, sober coach or you do speaking or you're in recovery and all that whole what do you think the problem is how do we fix this I'm like oh yeah let me just share one sentence with you that's going to be the answer to fix this madness and I and I just begin to elaborate to people like there are layers of problems and institutions and individuals on the streets with the you know drugs coming across there's so many different facets and viewpoints which is why i thought it would be awesome to hear about what it's looked like in your world in in the great state of utah which i have some history with myself but um why don't you jump in and tell us a little bit about you and what exactly it is you do career-wise Sure. So um, obviously you said I'm Rebecca and I uh, grew up in South Carolina. We're a military family. We moved to Salt Lake about 10 years ago and Salt Lake's been great. Huge city. It's growing. Uh, all of, so I'm a registered nurse. Um, my background is in critical care. So my entire career has been in the ICU and the last seven years I've been a flight nurse. Your whole career has been trauma. Trauma, intensive wow. care, critical care. Yes, yes, yeah. So um, when I uh, moved here to Salt Lake, uh, it was an interesting transition. I had worked in larger cities, but the larger cities were uh, in the South. And I, I don't feel like I was, um, I think I was a little bit sheltered at that time. This was 10 years ago from the opioid, uh, you know, I want to say pandemic, epidemic. <laughs> I feel like it's across the world, but anyway. Uh, so really, I, I feel like I really start, I started to see it working in shock trauma 
um, in the ICU when I moved here to Salt Lake, I felt like there was a big heroin prescription abuse problem. And then obviously I really started to see it uh, when I started to fly because I wasn't just um, sheltered in one ICU at that time. I was traveling all across the Mountain West to uh, transport patients for uh, all sorts of addiction um, problems and mental health issues. So yeah, my entire career has been in the critical care arena. Wow. And I'll, I, I want to say just a couple of things and please chime in with anything I'm about to say. But, you know, I've I lived in Utah. Uh, let's see. I moved there when I was about 10 and I lived there. Till I was 26, almost 27. And addiction grabbed a hold of me at 13, which, gosh, I don't even know. So um, that would have been 96, seven ish. But I tell people what it was like in Utah when I was growing up and almost every single time people are like, really Utah, I wouldn't think they had drugs there. Oh, really Utah. Like I don't. And I'm like, dude, sit down and listen, let me explain some things. So I've, I've over 30 of my friends from just only from the state of Utah have died. Yeah. yeah I think that was my ignorant perception too. Until I got here and started to see it. It is uh, when, when it was raging, when I was in the midst of it all would have been the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, Utah was right at the top of the list for overdoses per capita in the whole country. Um, I, for, for any of our listeners, have, have you, Rebecca, have you heard of the book Dreamland? I have, and I've read it. You have read it? Oh, yeah. fantastic. I have yes. too. I just, I just sent an email to Sam Keones to hop on the podcast. We'll see if he does. But oh, the book is, me too. The book is great. He mentioned, so he mentions Utah in it, a pain clinic yep. or trial they were doing there. Yeah. Um, and but, I guess that's the other thing I forgot to um, kind of bring up. Uh, my husband uh, worked for many years in his um, intel capacity as an intel analyst. He worked with the state drug task force. So, you know, I was oh, wow. seeing it on a, on a professional level and he was seeing it on a professional level in two different, um, you know, viewpoints. Mm-hmm. of what was going on here in the state of Utah <clears throat> across the country. Yeah. It it's gotten a little better than it was. I, th- I think if I'm gathering uh, information correctly, but it's still very bad there. Is it yeah, safe to say that? It's still very bad. I'll tell you, I've seen a shift in the last probably five years. I feel like people are finally starting to talk about it. And um, I, th- I think people are finally starting, we're starting to see some, some resources available for people to get the help that um, they need that wasn't, and uh, obviously we haven't talked about this, but as a parent from personal perspective, uh, my son started struggling with addiction around 13, 14. Very common window, that age frame, very, very common. Yes, yes, and at, at first I thought, oh, this is just normal teenage behavior, you know, we'll just, implement consequences and he'll get through this. And obviously that is not what happened. But early on when we were, you know, seeking treatment for him and the resources that were available were very different at that age till, you know, the last year. Um, just what insurance will cover, what, uh, you know, just on, on that side of things, there's been a drastic change in that too. That's awesome. That's a big, there, there's this video uh, that's made 
you know, they made it in Ohio. But every time I listened to it, I was like, that's that's my whole experience of growing up. That's Utah. And, and if you haven't seen it, check this out. We hop off and for our listeners. It's only like it's 59 seconds. It's literally it's they literally made it less than a minute on purpose. And it's called Denial, Ohio. And it's these. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I'll have to check it out. Is these you know normal middle class people and you know it's, it's the setup is as as if they're being interviewed, and they'll just bring up the opioid addiction and every single person's like, oh my kids they would never do that, oh in this neighborhood no 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 well that doesn't happen in this neighborhood. Meanwhile, Ohio is annually one or two in the overdose. And those are the ones. Capital. Those are the families that are suffering. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was one of those families. <clears throat> I remember you could probably talk to. To Brantley, and he remembers me uh, walking him through the ICU and saying, "This is this is what happens when you do drugs. This is what happens when there's overdoses." And I just thought, in my ignorant mind, that if he saw the repercussions of addiction, that it would prevent him from from experimenting. Did it? Nope. <laughs> It didn't for me either. It exactly. didn't for me either. Yep. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What you you expressed how you know you stepped on the scene in Utah and you weren't really ready for it. You weren't really expecting that. But to take a step back from that, let me ask you this. What was it that provoked you that wanted that, that drove you to want to be a nurse? Um so it's kind of, I wish I had like this profound story for you. Well, you just, you just have your story. That's what we want to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I uh, wanted to go to medical school and I had, I ended up getting married and I had Brantley and my neighbor was um, a single mom and she was a nurse and she only worked the weekends and she was home with her, with her son uh, all week. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do because at that time I felt like, okay, I chose to have a child and I wanted to be a mom. So obviously I've always, um, been this person that loves to care for people. Um, so I think it, it just fit all the boxes. That's awesome. Well, we need, we need good ones like yourself and thank you for what you do. I, I just think about it and I'm like, and a flight nurse to trauma, ICU, you're, you're probably, it's probably rare that you're handling a light case that, you know, it's just a minor situation. Like every single situation is life threatening. It would seem like, right? Well, you know, I think that's perception. Maybe what someone else's comfort level is, is different than mine. You know, it's, yeah, it's okay, I, yeah. I would be a liar if I said it was all like the TV shows, you know, just chaos all the time. But yes, people that I am interacting with and transporting, there are uh, life-threatening injuries or illnesses, and we are transporting them for a reason. Well, if no one else has thanked you recently, I will. Oh, thanks. People Everyone like you has probably, a role. Yeah. People, you're people you're like saving you, lives, so. too. Well, yeah. Yeah. There, no, I, I'm, I, I, I get it. It's true. There, there's, it's all hands on deck. It really is. There's, and there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do in the midst of it. Uh, but people like yourself saved my life at least once back in the day. So makes me grateful. Let me. <clears throat> so. One of the reasons I wanted to 
bring you on is I thought you have just a very unique perspective being somebody who is in the state of Utah where it's a lot of people think there's not a lot of addiction, but it's actually one of the worst states. Uh, having a family member that has, you know, a, a child that has gone through it and also being right in the midst of it consistently, seeing things, you know, in the work that you do. So let's talk a little bit about it. Tell us uh, what, what's been your experience and point of view in the midst of this addiction epidemic? <clears throat> oh, my experience is just heart-wrenching. Heart-wrenching. Um, so for your listeners, I guess I should just kind of be uh, transparent. Um, as, as, like I said earlier, as a professional in, in the world where I'm seeing the consequences of addiction firsthand and then experiencing it as a, as a parent, having a child struggle with addiction, it, there came a time where I was hopeless. I will, I will own it. I thought at one point that we were going to find um, my son up the canyon when the snowpack melted. We hadn't heard from him in six months. And I, I contribute a lot of that hopelessness to my professional career because I only saw the negative outcomes. Yeah, you I, only saw like the worst of the worst. Yeah, I, I didn't get to see recovery. And so every time those tones went off, there was a point that I thought I was going to be picking up my son. Now that is crazy, irrational thought. A city of, you know, what is there, 3 million people here? I'm not sure, something like that. That I thought that that one call was going to be my child. <laughs> so there was a time I mean, that- Well, I'll just say this, like statistically speaking, it might be, but I don't think that anybody would look from the outside looking into your situation and say it was irrational to have those fears with everything you were experiencing. I mean, statistically, it's like the chances are nothing, but- But that was my rock bottom. That was my rock bottom. That's when I knew I had to start taking care of myself. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I had to take leave from work for 12 weeks. And I had to, I had to get that- under control and I had to get some hope. <laughs> really, that's what it boiled down to. I needed to get some hope. And that's when I really started uh, attending Al-Anon meetings and uh, learning about codependence. Because I think as a woman, as a, as a mother and as a nurse, my job is to fix things and I fix them really well. <laughs> and that narcissistic type thinking, uh, when, it, when it comes to trying to help a family member with addiction is not going to work. And it slaps me in the face hard. <laughs> it's because it, I, I didn't know that part about taking 12 weeks off, but you know, this this work uh, and yours obviously different than mine, but, but consistently being around the broken, the hurting. Personally, I, I love it. I, I start getting itchy and annoyed if I distance myself because I just need to remind myself I need to help. I, I need to be around. I can't just sit around a bunch of people who are living in nice houses and cars and all the time. I got to be in the mess. I have to. And <clears throat> this is a very, very big mess. <laughs> this is a massive mess. And it's overwhelming quite often to people working on the front lines. And how often is that? People working on the front lines with this kind of stuff, how often are they able to spot the, you know, the burnout is what we would call it, I guess. And then... <laughs> 
do something about it, like take some time off. I feel like most of us are numb to it. I think I had a shift when it hit me personally. The way I treated patients um, before I had this personal experience, and I don't want your listeners to um, view me as calloused because I feel like I was a very compassionate a nurse before experiencing this with my son, but I will tell you, it changed everything about me professionally from hearing people or myself included, you know, maybe referring to someone coming into the emergency room or into the ER that they were a junkie or a drug seeking, or, you know, subconsciously you might've been viewing those patients as maybe a little less than you were, right? It's like you you didn't experience those those troubles. And, or for example, when I would just administer um, narcotics just willy-nilly to anyone, we would be in the ICU and people would be on fentanyl trips for days and you never thought about it. I will tell you that has shifted. That, that has shifted even when- Shifted I, in the sense of like the protocol for how much you give them and, and is that what you mean? If it's necessary. Is there another alternative? Let's get them off of this trip sooner. So yeah, there's more of a balance. You're more conscious about what is best for the patient and what potential harm you can be doing. I mean, I get into situations where I am transporting, like, let's say I have a patient that I'm picking up that's a car accident victim or for whatever reason. And they're, and you know, they have a history of addiction and they don't want narcotics or you, or you're really careful about what you you give them because you potentially can, you know, not every, not every person in recovery struggles with this, but you can give a medication that can really send someone into recovery into a tailspin. And so I think what changed in me, and I think it's changed, it's changing across the country is people are more conscious. Medical professionals are more conscious about um, the dangers and, and how it affects patients and just the way we view them. You know, when I have patients like that, I say, this could be my son, this could be my brother. Um, and, and they're treated with a lot more compassion. For example, I had to do a transport um, for a patient that I actually was taking to a detox from the emergency department. It was kind of a weird situation because that's not something that I typically do, but um, they asked me to do this, this transport. And I walked into the emergency room and I got a report from the registered nurse. And she's like, she was just kind of like rolling her eyes thinking, I'm pretty sure she just got some needles out of, out of her bag. And she used the, the last bit she got. And, you know, she was kind of calloused about it. And I, and for a second I stopped and I thought, oh, I'm sure that I participated in that kind of language, you know, discussions before. And I looked at her and I said, I'm sure she did. This is the scariest thing. Um, she's ever had to do she's going to get sober and it, it, it kind of stopped the other nurse in her tracks and just gave us full compassion about what this individual was going through that she was a human and she was no different than any of us she just happened to have a different challenge that was more visible than maybe mine or hers oh made me tear up it's very very true it's you know I have the 
privilege. That's what it is. I have the privilege of working with people one-on-one for years and in the community organizations and these things. And, and I tell people and I'm like, you know, it's easy to sit and look at the person who's, I was just chatting with a young lady this morning. It's, it's easy to see them be like, oh, they're obviously homeless. They're obviously have struggled. They, and, and, but you get a layer deeper and you start asking questions about how they got there. What happened? How'd you get into this situation? What's going on? You, you begin to understand things on a whole new level. They have a because story to how is it? How is it you throw all the blame on somebody who, like, at the age of 10, their uncle got them hired? I've heard stories of nine-year-olds, their uncle put a needle in their arm. Yeah. Is that the case for everybody? No, it's, it's not. A lot of people from really good homes, like, you know, like yourself and, you know, your son and myself. But just when you get a layer deeper and you listen to the story, it really, it really will provoke, it, it'll stir up compassion for sure. <clears throat> and when you understand that this really is a disease, this is not a choice, that's where everything changes. This is a disease. And when, you know, I don't, I, I can't think of in my professional career where I've seen, you know, I've never seen a provider get upset at an individual because they're struggling with cancer or hypertension or diabetes or, you know, heart disease. You have seen people, people see addiction as a choice and it's not a choice. When you really start to understand that this is a disease, this is a disease of the brain, you, you can have compassion. You're, you're, the way you view these people struggling changes. It's very true. Let, let me ask you this, because you're, you're, you're in a unique position in the sense that a lot of people aren't experiencing what you have experienced and are in your work and seeing you know, the, the fruit, the, the repercussions of addiction, the severity of it, really, the trauma of it. And at the same time, you're trying to walk out your own healing while trying to navigate a son who is navigating, we'll use that word again, his addiction and who is doing well now. Uh, but what, how did you begin to walk that out? So, after, so you took 12 weeks off, you come back to work now. How did yeah. you begin to walk that out? Um, for a long time, it was Al-Anon. I, I, you know, Brantley, I think was in... I haven't counted it up in a while, but I think it's eight, nine, 10 different treatment programs over the last decade. And I just had to get help for me now. And I had to understand that this was his choice and his, and his battle that I could, I, you know, he probably, it would be interesting to hear his, his uh, side of the story now, but something that I really learned to say is we will support you in recovery. So whatever it was that he needed, if it, if it supported him in recovery, then we were willing to do that. If it did not, um, that was our boundary because we had, we'd really been through, you know, you can imagine what someone has been through dealing with a loved one with addiction, you know, deceit, lies, theft, you know, we could go on and on. So that was our boundary. And, you know, I really learned the tools and, you know, every week, sometimes I go multiple times a week to uh, Al-Anon meetings. It depended. Did I have a rough week at work? Was I feeling good one, you know, one week, maybe I just needed, I, you know, basically what it boils down to is I really started to surround myself with people um, at all different levels of um, dealing with addiction in their personal lives, you know, and I'm saying not only was I 
you know, supporting, you know, supporting, not only was I interacting and, and creating friendships with other parents that had children or spouses dealing with addiction. I also surrounded myself with a lot of recovering addicts and, and, you know, hearing their unique perspective, but those, that was my lifeline. Honestly, that was my lifeline because I needed hope. Like I told you in my professional career, there was no hope. I was seeing, I was seeing the end of, end of the road for a lot of these beautiful, beautiful, beautiful patients that I had the opportunity to take care of. And the outcome wasn't always what we wanted, mm-hmm. but it really took a toll on me emotionally because I felt like I was constantly preparing for my son's death. And there's so many people, when you see it now, there's so many people that overcome it. There's so many people in recovery, there's hope. But at that time, all I could see was doom and gloom. And, you know, it was just out of control. I tell you, I wake up, I was planning his funeral. I thought his body was frozen in the snowpack at the canyon. It was always just, you know, trauma. Like I would be at the hospital and you'd hear the alarms go off. A trauma was coming in, you know, and I would have to go into the trauma bay and I would have to look at every patient's face to make sure it wasn't my son. When I tell you it was out of control, it was out of control. And taking those 12 weeks off, I needed it. I needed it bad. And I had to really start to work on myself because addiction is a family disease. It affects everybody. It can't not. It absolutely is a family disease. It does affect everybody. And my mom has told me that, that, you know, there were seasons where when the phone would ring at night, she was expecting it to be the, um, I guess, the coroner or whoever would be calling saying, hey, you know, or the police, you know, your son passed in a car accident or overdosed or freak accident or whatever, suicide, you know, she expressed the same things. I empathize with that. I would never sleep with my phone on vibrate or silent. Um, because I felt like I was going to miss a call and my husband would say, oh, you know, you can just put his number on favorites. So, you know, if he calls, it'll, it'll bypass that quiet mode. And I said, no, what if it was the hospital? What if, what if it it's was... an ambulance? What if it's yeah, <laughs> I was like, no, I just don't know. It was just, I was just in constant fear that I, I and I did get those phone calls. I got those phone calls, not that he was dead, but I got those phone calls that he was in the hospital. I got those phone calls from jail. I, you know, and as you know, I talked to you probably days later after that fatal car accident that he was involved in with friends. And um, I thought that was rock bottom too. And, you know, I just want to express to all your listeners, there is hope. It really, really is. <laughs> I can't. I've I've been through you know, I, my own issues, and I've seen it with many people. And I'm I'm just trying to fathom. I I could see why you would get to the point where you're like, I need to take twelve weeks off when your you know your son is going through that, and you're seeing because it's not like you know it's not like you're working at the flower shop and you can just forget about it. Your yeah. job, it's right. You can't not forget it's right there the whole time yeah and I'm here in Salt Lake so at that time um we had no family here we're a military family so it was really just myself my husband and and our son and during during that time my husband was deployed to Iraq so I was dealing with Brantley and his his addiction 
And it was, if I have to look back, I think that was the worst time. I don't, I wonder if that was the worst time in his, in his substance abuse, or if that was just, it felt like it was the worst time because that's where I was the worst. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'll say this real quick, you know, the, the first time Brantley and I talked, he, he was, he was literally in the hospital. You gave me his number in the hospital. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> I remind, I have reminded him of this a couple of times lately. Say, do you remember when we started where you were at and where you're at now? And, you know, without all the details, he's, it's safe to say he's doing much, 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 much better. Dramatic yeah, difference. Yes. Mm-hmm. 180 yeah yes um, there's plenty of growth as, left for anybody but he yeah. is he is much better as my husband says he is climbing the mountain <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when do you felt like it ch- began to turn a corner for you um really for me when I really started participating in in Al-Anon and other family support groups when that I support really is vital it's yes. vital mm-hmm. it's you know, I've been very, um, I, I felt like in the early years of Brantley's addiction, especially as, as a young teenager, I felt like it was not that I'm a secretive person, but I wasn't open to talking about it. I felt like I had to be respectful of Brantley's, you know, issues and his privacy. Now I've been, you know, I'm, a, I'm an open book when it comes to our situation and most people in my professional life and my personal life know that it is surprising how many people want to talk about it because I venture to say almost everybody has some experience with someone they love who is dealing with addiction. Yeah, when I when I speak, I, I used to ask people, I used to ask, raise your hand if you know someone, you know, personally or you know, friend or acquaintance, family or whatever who has struggled with addiction. And then I was like, I'm asking the wrong question. And I began to ask, who in here does not know somebody that is, and no hands. So I mean, it just, yeah, it was, and that was, you know, primarily in Ohio and in San Diego, but it is true. We're all in this together. And, and I think we've got to get rid of the stigma. We've got to talk about it because honestly, that was my lifeline. That's when there was a shift when, I just remember walking into that first meeting. I'm trying not to get tearful, but it was like, I was, I wanted someone to tell me what to do. Do you say first meeting, your first First meeting? I wanted, yeah, my first Al-Anon meeting. I wanted them to tell me how to fix this. X, Y, Z, do A, B, C. I can do it. I'm a good learner. Man, I wish it was like that. (laughs) And, you know, and they, and what I found is you want to, when you go in there, you want to talk about your loved one <laughs> and they kind of let you do it for a little bit. And then they quickly say, no, this is about you. And so that, that is where the shift happens. But I'm telling you, that was my lifeline. I was so broken. I remember when it was my time to speak. I think if I remember right, the first few times I just passed, I just listened. And I mean, I kept coming back, but I remember my first time I spoke, I mean, I couldn't even speak without like, you know, just <laughs> my first AA meeting that I can remember, I didn't even talk. And I sat there with my head down like this, just staring at the ground, just tears. Straight. I wasn't sobbing, so they couldn't hear me crying, but mm-hmm. I cried literally for like 30 minutes straight. The uh, tears just dri- yeah. and I just stared at the ground. 
I am telling people, if you go in with an open heart and you just experience it, there is something special that goes in those meetings. I can't, I can't explain it. But when, when people come to me and they say, what do I do? I say, get to a meeting. Build this, build this support, you know, yes. community around you. Mm-hmm. Yes. So let me ask you this. There's, you know, there's that struggle of, so you have a family member or a son or daughter, spouse, whatever, and addiction takes over their life. Well, you don't really want to talk to people about it, you know, and it's, you know, I, I don't, I'm not the one with the problem. Look at this situation. It's not me. Look at them. Yeah. And here's the truth. There's some truth to that. There is, but that doesn't erase the fact or negate that that addiction, it, it affects everybody in the family. Yeah, it's a family. It's going it's to knock people for a loop. What would you say to the person who might be stuck in that spot? Who's saying, no, it's not me. Look at, they're the one that's in jail. They're the one that da-da-da-da-da. What would you say to that person? Work the steps. Work the program. Just try it. You have nothing to lose. <laughs> um, because I think the light bulb kind of went off on my head in my head um, when I finally figured out what's your contribution to this. And I started to recognize I had a really big contribution. Yes, it wasn't my fault, but I am contributing to it. And so when I started to change that, when I started to, and I mean, this is true of everything. This is true when I'm fighting with my husband or any kind of conflict. What is my contribution? The only person I can control, the only person I can change is me. A plus B equals C. Well, if I want to change C, I'm going, the only thing I can change is A, if I'm A, right? And I think that's just kind of where the light bulb went off. But I would even try to challenge that person to try to change their mind. I would just say, go to your meetings. Just go to your, just keep going. You, something will click eventually. You will recognize um, there, this is more about you than it is about them. And I don't, I mean, I think I've shared this with you before, but I'm at a point in my life where I thank God every day for my sweet Brantley, who um, gave us this experience of addiction, because who I am today is not who I was 10 years ago. My marriage is completely different. Who I am spiritually, you know, the way I view the world is so different. And I would have never had the opportunity to really dive deep and do that work that I needed to do um, to become the person I needed to be if it wouldn't have been for the challenges of of Brantley. And addiction does change you, but I promise everybody, I know it doesn't seem like a gift now, but I have made the most amazing friendships and relationships. Uh, You can come out on the other side of this in such a beautiful place and you have the opportunity to help so many other people that are struggling. Oh, we should just end right there. <laughs> that was, that is really is good because, you know, as you know, as well as anybody in the midst of it, hope is not something that it, it doesn't seem within reach. It just doesn't even me in the midst of going through it. I remember there was just times where it was like, what's the point? I'm just going to go out in a blaze of glory tonight. We just find as many pills and alcohol. Like, but I, there's no way out of this. 100% hopelessness. 100% hopelessness. And there's no way out of that. And God just has a way of changing circumstances, of shifting around relationships, of the, 
you know, in my mind, it's dang it. I should have gone left, but I went right and I got arrested. You know, if I just would have gone left and the arrest is what sparked my whole recovery journey. So in the midst of that, though, it, it can seem intensely hopeless, dark and heavy. And that journey into the other side is so it's so freeing. It's, it's almost as if there's not words to describe it. It's, it's the equivalent. I haven't been, you know, a slave or in prison for years, but I could imagine just, you know, getting set free from slavery, mm-hmm. you know, getting, getting, serving your 10 year prison sentence and the door opens and it's like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Whew, there yeah. is freedom. That's why it's so imperative to, to surround yourself with people that can, can help lift that burden. Your, you know, your higher power, God, and the people you surround yourself because there are those those times that are so dark and you say why like what's the point i mean i i sat in meetings i sat with people rolled my eyes like they don't know what i'm dealing with my child's unique you don't know what you know i tried that same thing you guys don't know anything about my life yeah exactly (laughs) exactly and so i'm saying i love you i empathize with you there are more people that understand it than you think there is hope. Fill that bucket with hope because it, there are dark times. Have you read the book, How Full Is Your Bucket? No, I have not. Oh, you just used the analogy. So, so I thought you had. I oh, did I? Um, yeah. I used to go, they used to here in Salt Lake, you know, it's kind of amazing how big the recovery community here is. I um, have gone to several uh I guess you would call them similar to speaker meetings, but there's seminars where a lot of people of all different um, backgrounds that come and speak. Those were also a huge, you know, strength for me. Hearing from, you know, former addicts to physicians who struggle, I mean, physicians who treat addiction, you know, learning. Power in the stories. Yes, power in the stories. And I just, I hung on to all of those. And I just remember, Speaking of, he would be a great person to have on your podcast. Uh, I remember uh, him saying, uh, just make it rain. He had tried to commit suicide, I think, 22 times. I forget the exact you know, story. He had been to like 19 rehabs. I think he had lost, you know, he was this young professional and had lost millions. And he just thought, you know, struggling with addiction and just thought why. And he just... He just, his story spoke to me. And I just remember him saying, make it rain. And I was like, it just like, those words just kind of grabbed me. And I was listening and he was like, you know, make it rain, just love them. That's all you can do is just make sure they know you love him. And so every time something bad would happen with Brantley, I would say, just make it rain, just love him no matter what. Like I can be angry with him, but as long as you know (laughs) that I love him that he's not the disease. And so I, those words just like ring in my head. You know, my sister is having problems, you know, starting to have problems with her teenager. And I remember just saying, make it rain, make it rain. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's so true. But one of the things that I tell people, because we used to do panels all the time, we would do seminars or uh, yes. some sort of speaking event or something in, in Ohio. And we would, all, we would do panels and field questions. And people would, I, I would get the question often, well, I've tried everything. What do I do? And immediately at that point, you know that, you know, they're trying to control the situation, you know, or they wouldn't be asking with that much frustration. Yep. But I just tell people, I'm like, 
look, as hard as it is in those moments, you just, yes, have boundaries. Of course, we're not doormats, but just be as kind and as loving as you can. And as, as simplified and cliche as that sounds, what happens is, no, you probably aren't going to provoke them to change right in the moment just because you were kind when they were mad at you. Probably not. But over time, this is what happens is they finally get to a place where they're desperate. They're, they're going to get to a place where they're ready to talk to somebody. They finally feel, you know, they've hit that rock bottom. The first person they're going to think of is the person that was always kind to them. The first person that's going to come to mind is that person that was so often trying to share hope with them, trying to support them. That's the first person that's going to come to mind. But it can be, it can be some discipline to, to walk that out, bite your tongue at times, draw the boundaries at times, but consistently making it rain. Yeah. You know, I, I, I like to say it like you love the hell out of it. Yes, <laughs> yes. And love, when you really learn what love is and what codependency is, it's much easier to, to love them. Boundaries made it very easy for me to love him. I didn't have to fight with him anymore. It was just like, you know, you you know my rules, Brantley. You know, my my boundaries, like, you know, we would allow him after he'd get out of rehab, he would come home and then he would start to use again or whatever. And, it, you know, before it would have been the most traumatic thing to, to kick him out of the house. It became very easy. I love you so much. I have to hold these boundaries and I'm not going to fight and yell with you. And it's not going to be this big traumatic event. You broke the rules and these are the consequences. And I think it, 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 it makes it really easy to love them because you're not angry. It's just, that's the boundary period. I still love you. We can, you can still call me. You can still, we can still go out to lunch. We can still meet even though you're in active addiction, you just can't live here. That's my rule. Mm -hmm. Let me, let me ask you this. So somebody's listening, right. And they don't, maybe they have a loved one that's struggling or they, you know, they've been never been to Al-Anon or read the codependency book or whatever. Uh What, what define codependency in its simplest form? Oh, you really put me on the spot. (laughs) I did put you on the spot. Or not um, just I, okay, for, so correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, the way I try to explain codependency is it really has more to do with me than the other person. I'm actually satisfying my needs and not theirs. And I'll give, and this is the example I give. Brantley wants something. Let's say he wants to live here, right? And he's broken the rules. And instead of me kicking him out, I allow him to stay. I'm not allowing him to stay because I love him. I'm allowing him to stay because of my feelings. I don't want to be scared at night where he is. I don't want to, you know, worry about how he's going to react because he's angry, right? I, so those decisions are really made based on my, my fear of what's going to happen or or prevention of what I don't want to feel. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it's, it's, it's a hard line to walk. I mean, I have not walked it. I have not had a, a, yeah. a child, right? But I've interacted with many, many parents and my mom, she's been on the podcast and different things. And it can be a, I would imagine that everything in you, you're fighting your instincts on every single level. You have to intentionally fight against, because yeah, as a mom- intentional. Yes, yes, that's the word intentional. It's just even think about it with like a three-year-old or five-year-old. 
you're on the phone. They keep wanting, can I go, can I go to the park? Can I go to the park? Can I go to the park? You say, no, 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 no. And then you eventually give in. That is codependency. You don't want to hear them ask you one more time, right? You've allowed them to break your boundary and to continue hounding you until they get yes. That is, that is the definition of codependency. Oh gosh, now you're convicting me because I got a three-year-old and a four-year-old and I've done that. <laughs> oh, well, listen, listen, Eric, it took me 22 years to figure this out. <laughs> and I still don't have it figured out, but I mean, that boundaries are so important. If I could go back and raise my child differently, I, I'm like, man, every parent should work the 12 steps and learn about codependence. Every person. Every person. It, like, it is just the most amazing program and you can apply it to anything it doesn't have to be applied to addiction but yeah we I think we kind of what's the word I'm looking for we just kind of train our children to be that way based on our decisions and this codependent relationship just develops over time and it wasn't apparent until I finally like was able to look down the last 20 years Oh my gosh, it started off when it was very young. You know, it's very, it's, it's got to be very freeing and empowering though to, to be where you're at today. Because I think most people are like, my experience has been this. Most people say, I'm going to be happy when the situation's perfect. I'll do the right thing when the situation's better. You know, I'll change when I, when I catch a break. I thought life all- would be good when Brantley became sober. Mm-hmm. And that's not... I have been at peace even when he was in active addiction. Um, Did I worry about him? Yes. But was I able to live my life and still um, be fulfilled with relationships, you know, my career, all of those, all of those things. I, I, I was manageable and that's, and that's essentially what, what, you know, when life becomes unmanageable, let's talk about the steps. Once you, once you, once you're able to have a manageable, life um you have peace and hope even through the hard things I, and i mean i can tell you this year has been one of the roughest years of my life but it was nowhere like it was when i wasn't you know working working my steps or you know working on me participating um when i wasn't participating in al-anon uh, just, you, you get the tools, you add tools to your toolbox if you're able to get through life. Life remains hard. You're just able to do it with a different pair of glasses on and a different set of tools in your toolbox. It's actually the name of a book. A guy in early AA, new pair of glasses. Yeah. Tuxi. Yep. He, he wrote a book about, you know, just the perspective shift. Obviously he, he was a, I believe it was a doctor was drinking for years and, uh, he referred to his uh, higher power all throughout the book as the carpenter. Oh, yeah. I was like, hey, I think I've read about a carpenter in the Bible. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, can't, I can't thank you enough because right now, I mean, this is, this is I, I feel like the conversations surrounding addiction and what do parents do and codependency and walking this out, I feel like it's one of the most important conversations right now. It's not being had because on a national scale, they're not, they're not talking about this. There's plenty of problems going on, you know, probably a lot more so than usual. 
and politicians trying to gain an upper hand in the midst of it. It's been a mess in the last year and a half. It's gotten right? worse. We we have undone in the last 18 months, we have undone all the hard work that we, I, I cannot even imagine. Still in some states, I mean, these, like, like I've told you, these meetings were life, a lifeline for me. Can you imagine um, these people that are in recovery or trying to be in recovery? The meetings were shut down, family meetings, Al-Anon. Um, you couldn't even go see your therapist. You couldn't get into the doctors. There's so many things. My heart breaks. I, it is heart-wrenching to see what's going on and to see the uptick of, you know, overdoses and suicide right now. It just, to be, to be frank with you, I'm furious. And I just want family members to know it is hard right now. And everyone needs to come together and just love and support we can get through this. And there are people that don't even know you, that love you and know what you're going through. Reach out. They will be there. Mm -hmm. That is the 13th step. We will be there. It's really good. You know, I'm, I want to, I want to, I'm going to share this story from a. I said the 13th step. That's actually <laughs> the 13th step. Is my, no, it's the 12th step. <laughs> There's a lot of listeners who know will know exactly what the 13th step is. I'm glad yeah. you corrected that. Yeah, no, that's the 12th step. You it's, should it's have 12th. corrected me. <laughs> but it sounded it, it sounded great though. No, but <laughs> yeah, no. Well, there, if if you know what the 13th step is, then you know. If you don't, man, yeah, look it up. But I'll say this. <laughs> you know, the, this book that I love that I mentioned earlier is called How Full Is Your Bucket, right? And, and this book, and I've mentioned it before on the podcast, and I believe I've mentioned this story specifically, but it fits right now. And this book essentially is about how powerful encouragement is. Not just like, yeah, it makes me feel better. No, they did studies for like 50 years on what the, the effects of a pessimistic person in a workplace, uh, the effects of like psychological warfare on uh, prisoners of war, they would do. They, they literally studied it for decades. And one of the stories in the book is a simple one. Um, and, oh gosh, I might forget some of these details. I, I am going to forget some of them. But the gist of it is this. I believe it was Vietnam or, or maybe it was the Korean War. Either way, it was one of those two. And there was this uh, POW camp. And it was the POW camp that had the worst death rate in the history of modern warfare. For POW camps. Ever since they started keeping track of how deadly POW camps were, how many people died in them, this is the worst. Okay. It didn't even have a fence around the facility. None of the guards had weapons, and nobody was stopping anybody from leaving. You're like, what well, doesn't make like that? Nothing, something's not adding up here, right? This, this is what they would do. And I'm bringing this up because we're talking about the isolation piece right now and what it does to people. You know, you've emphasized this entire time the importance of community. And it's vital. I could go on for hours about how important early recovery was for me, community. If I didn't have it, I wouldn't have made it, period. It's, it's vital and it's out there. But what the, what the guards would do at this camp is they would literally just starve the prisoners of encouragement. They would starve if they did something wrong. They made them get up in front of the whole camp and say what they did wrong. And then they made them follow it up by all the things they could have done right, but didn't. They would, and I don't know how it's in the book, but they would get mail. These prisoners of war would get mail 
And they would they would read the letters and they wouldn't give them anything that had anything positive, in it, nothing. They would only give them the negative letters. And there's multiple other things, the things they would do to divide them and whatnot. And it was so dead. This is how most of the men died in the camp. They crawled up in the corner of the hut, pulled a blanket over their head and laid there for two days until they died. It was called, they called it give up itis. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> there's something that takes place inside of us, even on a chemical level. I talked about it in the last podcast, escaping the victim mentality, but there's something that takes place inside of us when we're isolated. We start thinking unclear. We start doing things we wouldn't do. We don't, we're not bouncing um, ideas off of people. We're not getting fed. You know, people aren't lifting our burdens and it puts us back in a corner and all of a sudden just hopelessness takes over. I mean, I think we've all heard the opposite of addiction is isolation. Mm-hmm. No, the opposite. The opposite of addiction is oh, the opposite of addiction. A lot of people like to say sobriety. It's connection. Connection, as I say, relationship. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah connection. And so, yeah, that's that's how we're going to get through this. <laughs> it is. It is. I think. I think there's change. I, I think the the stigma in the last ten years. There's been dramatics. You know, progress. I agree. Uh, but so there's for that. There's still a. Plenty of work to be done and plenty more conversations that need to be had. Yep. Yep. Well, I can't thank you enough. For Thanks your day for having off, me. Though. You're welcome. On your, on your day off of saving lives, you hop on and chat with little old us. Oh, do not say that. I don't <laughs> like it when you minimize yourself. You are saving lives. Do you even know how I found you? I'm trying to think. I believe it was Instagram, was it? I hashtag, I did a search, hashtag sober coach. <laughs> did you? <laughs> oh, so it worked. Yeah, I talked to <laughs> several different sober coaches when I was trying to find a sober coach for branding. I yeah. remember. So don't minimize what you do. Don't minimize what anyone does. I'm telling you, we're a team and we all have a purpose in this world. And don't say little old me. I don't believe that at all. <laughs> we all are playing a part. I just yeah. look at what some people do and I say, yes, I'm, I'm playing my part and I've seen some good things happen, but. But you changes. do what you love. Your, your job's not any less important than mine. I do what I love. I selfishly am an adrenaline junkie. I get to go out and fly in a helicopter all over the place. You know, <laughs> don't, don't talk it up. I, I, I'm doing my job and you're doing yours. And there are so many other people um, that are doing theirs and so important one is not less important than the others well it is true it's it's a good way to end too because you know as i touched on earlier this is a very big problem from many different angles and we need people coming at it from many different angles so it's a very good very good point we all can make a difference this is a multifactorial problem oh my goodness is it ever yeah some statistics come to mind one quick one like america did you know america is what four percent four and a half percent whatever of the world's population we consume 80 percent of the world's opiates yep of and, that's the the planet, and that's the, the same planet. with pharmaceuticals that's <laughs> like not just opiates pharmaceuticals it's crazy the statistics mm-hmm. all the way down the line so you are 100 percent correct we need as many people doing as many jobs in the middle of this as we can yep and we've got to talk about it Mm-hmm. Take it, get it out of the dark. Well, thank you for, yes, for coming on, for being open, vulnerable, 
you know, I found that people who are really open and real about what they've been through, their, their story holds power and hope. Because it can reach that person who's in that spot that feels like there's no way out. And they say, wait a minute, that person did it. If they can do it. I can do it. So what I wanted to say, yes, you can do it. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. Well, thank you again. And for our listeners, thank you guys for joining us on another episode here of the Recovering Reality Podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Recovering Reality Podcast. If you're looking for more recovery resources to help you in your journey, you can access our YouTube channel, a free ebook, our podcast and blogs through recoveringreality.com. You can also connect with us about recovery coaching, sober companionship, or interventions. And if you're looking for treatment for you or a loved one, you can reach out to a very well-respected treatment center called Banyan Treatment Centers at 866-942-8154.